Episode 21 of the Share Profits Radio Show on the 16th of December 2019. And here's your host, Tom Winifrith. Hi, it is indeed Tom Winifrith, and I am indeed back in Wales, albeit only by 30 yards. Actually, I wonder, is it only by 30 yards? It doesn't quite seem that way. The boundary between Wales and England runs along the bottom of our garden, uh, past an orchard, and uh, around the edges of our fields. It is the River Dee, and as seems to be the case, it is flooded. Uh, It seems to be the case every couple of weeks. Uh, It is once again flooded. In the middle of the biggest field, there is now an enormous lake, uh, the orchard is now underwater and the waters are encroaching onto the formal lawns. Over in England, the field opposite is completely and utterly underwater and still the waters rise. Of course, the boundary between England and Wales is still in exactly the same place, the middle of the river, but it's hard to know where the river begins and the floodwaters end. Uh, it's somewhat blurred, as are so many things in life. I today read an email by someone who was cancelling his membership of Share Profits. These things happen. Overall, uh, our readership continues to increase on a weekly basis, and the number of people investing £5.99 a month in our service increases. People want to listen to the Bearcasts every day. They want to see companies uh, who are lying to investors who are committing fraud exposed. I would urge you all to support good investigative journalism and help save yourself money by avoiding the frauds and the overpromotes and the liars uh, by joining Share Profits now if you have not done so already. It costs just $5.99 a month. Think how much you're spending on Christmas. Think how little $5.99 a month is. Give yourself an early present. Anyhow, this fellow was cancelling his membership and his uh, reason for doing so, he said the site was excellent. He loved us for what we did, but what he wanted was more uh, buy tips. We don't tend to produce that many on the website, although our writers do serve them up uh, uh, fairly regularly. The thing is, there are an awful lot of websites out there who are serving up buy tips. What value would we really add? We'd just be like all the other websites. Uh, We try to do something a little bit different. Of course, those companies which we expose for lying and committing fraud and all that sort of thing, uh, we're always accused by folks on the bulletin boards of doing so because we're short. Or where even even more funny, uh, we're trying to de-ramp the stock, whatever that means, so that we can buy in more cheaply. Trust me, when I attack a small company for committing fraud, I have no desire to buy its shares at any price. It is not my intention to drive down the share price so that I can buy. It is my intention to drive the authorities to take action against the criminals running that company but also to save folks money uh, by alerting them to the fact that they are going to face wipeout uh, and uh, suggesting that they sell their shares beforehand. 
So uh, the idea, by the way, that we are short of most of the stocks we we, uh, attack, that is equally ludicrous. You can only short a stock if there is borrow, and that means that the company needs to have institutional investors who are prepared to lend out the stock. The vast majority of companies on AIM have no institutional investors. If they have one, because some deluded fool somewhere wants to punt other people's money, it is very unlikely that that deluded fool will lend out his stock. In other words, it is impossible to short the vast majority of companies on AIM. In exposing them for what they do wrong, we do so uh, only uh, so that uh, if you are unlucky enough to own the shares, you can get out before it's too late. And hopefully that we can see some of the bad guys who give London markets such a bad reputation uh, 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 the uh, we can see those guys kicked off the London markets and hopefully sent to prison. Uh, there will be people sent to prison as a result of our work. I can make this my first prediction for 2020. 2020 will be the year when the Serious Fraud Office arrest Robert Terry uh, and the other members of the Quindell gang, and they will face criminal charges for the fraud, a fraud we did so much to expose. Anyhow, from a great big company, or it was at one stage, a three billion company in the form of Quenron, uh, to a very small company, uh, one that we have done an awful lot to expose uh, on share profits. It's called Iconic. The epic is I-C-O-N. And its chairman is a gentleman called David Sefton. Uh, this company, its shares have been very weak uh, uh, on the day I'm recording this on Monday, and they're now down to 0.625 of a penny, or is it 0.065? It doesn't really matter. Fair value for the company is zero. It is a worthless piece of crap. Uh, the market cap is round about a million quid. Why do I mention Iconic? Because it, it raises so many uh, red flags uh, that you just do not know where to start. Uh, Therefore, anyone owning the shares is almost by definition certifiable. Uh, The first uh, red flag is the issue of management. Uh, If There are some people who are good managers and there are some people who are bad managers and there are some people who are proven liars and scoundrels. Uh, If a company, however good, is run by a proven liar and a scoundrel, Uh, then its end will be a sticky one. You don't know when or why it will come to a sticky end, but it will come to a sticky end. If by some miracle it manages to turn the corner, uh, then a liar and a scoundrel will make sure that he steals all the upside. Uh, But it's unlikely that people who operate in this way will deliver any upside to be stolen. It will simply be a matter of keeping the company going long enough that they can take money out either via share sales, covert or overt, uh, or by paying themselves vast salaries. So let's start with the issue of management. Iconic's chairman is a man called David Sefton. Have I spoken to David Sefton? Have I actually met him? No, I think I've just spoken to him uh, uh, quite a bit when he used to run a company called Anglo-African Oil and Gas. I exposed uh, what was going on, or part of what was going on, as Anglo-African oil and gas, and that got him the boot. Amongst the things that he was doing was that he had a private company where he was a major shareholder, and until 10 days ago, or 15 days ago, a director called Anglo-Tunisian oil and gas. 
the people who were backing that were a firm which provided death spiral funding. Uh, Mr. Sefton wanted to get death spiral funding for Anglo-African oil and gas and agreed a deal with his mates, which was utterly usurious. It was bound to destroy value in uh, uh, Anglo-African oil and gas. I exposed this, and the company pretty soon found itself able to do another deal on much better terms for it. The fact that Mr. Sefton was prepared to give basically free money uh, to the death spiral provider when they were funding his private company surely shows a monumental conflict of interest. There was the issue of the expenses. This was a tiny little company not generating free cash flow, but it was flying Mr. Sefton around the world first class on Emirates. Again, uh, that is not a conflict of interest, uh, but it suggests a management who really don't give a damn about shareholders' interests. Then there was the lying. Uh, which started with Mr. Sefton uh, recording ramptastic interviews with proactive investors, and I think with Justin the Clown at Vox Markets, in which he insinuated that the company was uh, to use what will be one of the uh, uh, bon mots of 2019, that the company was uh, uh, fully funded or it had funding secured. A week later, the company did a great big placing. Uh, maybe uh, he wasn't lying. He was misleading investors, certainly. Finally, uh, when it emerged that the company had spent £300,000 doing due diligence on an acquisition, but had then decided not to go ahead with the acquisition, but had passed the due diligence files over to Mr. Sefton's private company, Anglo-Tunisian Oil and Gas, uh, I forced the company to admit to this. And Mr. Sefton put out a statement saying that Anglo-Tunisian Oil and Gas would, if it completed the acquisition, repay the £300,000. Over the past week, it's become abundantly clear that this has not happened. Uh, Mr Sefton's fellow director at Anglo-African Oil and Gas was a man called James Berwick, 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 something like Berwick, uh, who was uh, uh, also a director of Anglo-Tunisian Oil and Gas and a major shareholder in it. Uh, it emerged uh, last week on election day amid a welter of bad news from Anglo-African uh, that uh, Anglo-Tunisian had indeed completed on the deal using the due diligence funded by Anglo-African, but that it hadn't actually paid the money back. We were told negotiations were continuing. Mr. Berwick was negotiating with Mr. Berwick. I pointed out that was unsustainable. Uh, it was an obvious conflict of interest and he had to be fired. And he was indeed resigned on the 14th of December. But still, only 100,000 of the 300,000 has been repaid. 150,000 is due to be repaid. And more than 50,000 appears not to be repaid at all. Yet Mr. Sefton put out a statement saying that the monies would be repaid in full. I put it to you that he is, at best, not a man of his word. At worst, a complete and utter liar. Mr. Sefton is also chairman of Iconic, and that's a major red flag. Uh, he's the executive chairman. There are, I believe, no non-executive directors, no one to keep him under any sort of control at all. The rest of the board are very young men with no PLC experience. Mr. Sefton can do whatever he likes. If you entrust your money to Iconic, you're entrusting your money to Mr. Sefton, who is clearly 
a man who doesn't believe that he should keep his word and is indeed prepared to mislead investors. We've seen that also with Iconic. The company has made statements about an acquisition it made, its flagship acquisition, which is a website called Gay Star News, GSN. It has put out statements suggesting the company had revenues of X in 2018, blah, 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 blah. What it neglects to mention is that the company went bust halfway through July 2018. It was able to pick it up from a pittance, for a pittance from the administrator because the company had gone bust. And a website which has gone bust and has had no content for 15 months is a website which is more or less worthless. Again, investors were misled by Mr. Sefton as to the nature of the historic performance of Gay Star News and indeed its position at the time of going to administration. The company at the time of going to administration essentially said that its business model was unviable. This was not reflected in the statements made by Iconic. We have another red flag. Uh, Iconic has uh, some liabilities from its previous business, a business called Wide Cells, but it can't tell you what the liabilities are exactly. It claims it's trying to wriggle out of them, but it can't tell you how successful it is in its wriggling. It declines to tell you what its cash position is as of now. Uh, we have historic cash positions. It declines to tell you what its ongoing costs are. It declines to tell you what the operating cash burn is from the ragbag of useless businesses it's acquired. In other words, anyone investing in this company is doing so on a complete leap of faith. You see, the point of an RNS statement should be to inform investors, to allow you to get a full and fair view of a company's position, to understand its financial position, how trading is going, uh, where uh, the company will be going forward. We've had none of this from Iconic. Uh, my suspicion, uh, founded on the most recent statements from the company, but something you can't prove is that the company is running on vapours. It has almost no money and it is burning quite a lot of cash. But again, one is uh, uh, stabbing in the dark, so to speak. One is guessing. One has no firm view on this, but the silence from the company, the silence from the company, its refusal to give a, a, a full position, a full picture of its financial position, makes me convinced that I am right. It is almost out of cash. Uh, if I want a final red flag, uh, the red flag would be uh, that the company ha is having its AGM on December the 30th. Well, where will you be on December 30th? I suspect that unless you're a real saddo, you'll be with your family on December 30th. Uh, it's almost New Year. You probably took time off over Christmas. So who's going to go to the AGM? And where is the AGM being held? In Sheffield. Sheffield on December 30th. I put it to you there are unlikely to be very many shareholders who live within a reasonable distance of Sheffield, given what, how bad public transport will be at that time, how the weather will be like. How many shareholders in Iconic live within a reasonable distance of Sheffield and are so utterly sad that they're prepared to uh, take a day out of their Christmas break to go to the AGM of Iconic? The answer is you and I uh, well know is almost none. There will be almost nobody at the AGM, perhaps the directors, one advisor, just enough to make it quiet. There will be nobody there asking the sort of questions which I might ask, like, 
Uh, why is your? Why do you have an executive chairman who's a proven liar? Uh, do you believe a word he says? Why is it that you have no non-execs? Because no one would want to join this company. What's your financial position, et cetera, et cetera? The decision to hold the AGM on December the 30th in Sheffield is a clear sign that these people do not want to have any scrutiny whatsoever. So where does this leave the company? Obviously, with a market cap of a million quid, there's no way you can short the stock, but there are still some people out there uh, who are being urged to buy it. And no doubt Mr. Sefton will do another cosy interview with proactive investors soon. They will put out RNS statements suggesting there is a bright tomorrow. Uh, this is all because the company quite clearly needs to raise money. It's too small, probably, to get any death spiral funding. Uh, any placing it does will have to be at a heavy discount. Uh, and will be with bucket shop brokers. But I wonder, with a market cap of around about a million, if even that will be possible. The company clearly faces a funding crisis. Uh, and so what should you do? Well, you can't short it, but if you're a shareholder, you should get out now. I know you'll be taking a hefty loss, uh, but you were warned many times beforehand on share profits and you ignore that advice. But it's better to take a hefty loss than to lose everything. And this company is clearly doomed. Anyhow, those red flags, you may want to think about some of the other companies you're invested in. Do they display any of those red flags? This podcast is, of course, free, uh, unlike all the material on share profits. It costs you nothing to listen to. That's, that, uh, that is only possible thanks to the kind sponsorship of Open Orphan PLC. It is a company on AIM. It has recently announced an all-share merger with a company called Havivo, cleaning up the life sciences space. Both companies were historically loss-making, but under new management, that is all changing. And yeah, the business created will, I believe, have critical mass, uh, making it attractive to a predator. I am slightly biased. I am a shareholder. Uh, I'm still in the money with the shares at, what, 5.5p? Um, and I still believe that the shares will. Once people understand the metrics of this merger and the profitability, which is possible next year, uh, I'm sure, although there are no figures in the market, uh, I'm sure uh, uh, that the shares will move sharply higher. If you want to know more about Open Orphan, just follow us on Twitter at Open Orphan. If you want to know more about the strategy, listen to Share Profits Radio Edition 8, where I interviewed the company's CEO, Cathal Friel. It's all very well giving a warning about a company which could uh, lose you invest a lot of money, but it can sometimes take an awfully long time for your warnings to come true. I was reminded of that this week. Uh, by a company called G3E. My friend, Evil Bankster, wrote a piece on share profits on Sunday, uh, the 15th of December, explaining why this company was effectively insolvent. It is insolvent. Uh, it's having to do an arrangement with its creditors, uh, uh, people from whom it has borrowed a vast amount of money in order to uh, restructure its finances. As a result of that, uh, the creditors are clearly going to have to take something of a haircut, which means that the shareholders will lose everything. Amazingly, the shares still trade uh, uh, on London's market. Shame on AIM regulation. Shame on the London Stock Exchange. 
Uh, that shares in a company which is insolvent are trading just shows what a joke regulation is. Once again, it is impossible to short this stock as there is no borrow. But if you are a shareholder with the shares at 16p, my strong advice to you is to get out now as that is 16p too high. This stock is uh, a zero. Why do I mention this? Because I first covered this company when it was known as Green Dragon Gas back in October 2013, more than six years ago. At that time, uh, someone passed to me uh, what came to be known as the bloody dossier. If you do a search on share profits, you'll be able to find that dossier. This dossier showed a number of things. It showed that where the company operated in China, uh, it was employing gangs to go and beat up poor peasants to drive them off their land. It was committing human rights abuses, no doubt in collusion with the vile government of China. It showed that Randy Gruel, the man who ran Green Dragon Gas, uh, had operations in California, which had time and time and time again uh, been uh, uh, slated and fined by the state for environmental abuses. Uh, why was it committing environmental abuses? Because it was uh, doing the very bare minimum of capital expenditure, in fact, less than the bare minimum of capital expenditure, uh, in order to keep the lights on by generating more cash. If you slash CapEx below a certain level, in the short term, that can boost the cash you get from operations. The reality is that uh, uh, Mr. Gruel's operations in California were fairly piss poor and weren't generating much in the way of operating cash flow. Has he done the amount of capital expenditure needed uh, to stop these, uh, these wells leaking oil all over the place, destroying the environment and killing wildlife? Then his company would have been burning cash. He opted uh, instead to do minimal capital expenditure or none uh, to destroy the environment uh, and to uh, line his pockets with the surplus cash generated. This, to me, was a rather bad sign uh, about the antics of Mr. Gruel, a company that's prepared to commit human rights abuses and a company that is prepared to destroy the environment in pursuit of greed uh, may in the short term benefit from it. But in the long term, that business model is unsustainable. There were other questions raised. Uh, uh, Green Dragon Gas, as was, was clearly not generating any cash. And even at that stage, had uh, uh, liabilities and debts, which it was in no way able to meet. I predicted that the company could go bust within six weeks. Six years later, it still hadn't gone bust. But the shares had declined from 260p, 260p at the time that I published the bloody dossier, uh, uh, to uh, uh, 16p today. So it was a pretty good call. But the company didn't go bust for six years. Why is that? Well, if you're prepared to lie and cheat to investors uh, and do whatever you can, you can keep the plates spinning for an awfully long time. We know that regulators in the UK are absolutely pathetic. Heck, if I was a regulator, and uh, for various reasons I never will be, if I was a regulator, I would have read the bloody dossier and said that the management at Green Dragon Gas was not fit to run a public laboratory, let alone a public company, and that the stock should have been slung off aim. I Back in 2013, I was younger and more naive, and I somehow hoped that the regulators might actually look at that and also look at the parlous financial condition of the company and decide that Green Dragon Gas was simply not investment-grade material. But they didn't. 
they did nothing. And as a result, of course, investors over the years uh, have lost more and more money. Uh, those with any sense bailed at 260. Uh, but as people sold the stock down from 260 down to 16p, there have always been people who've been t- looked at the chart and thought, jolly japes, this company's shares have halved, maybe they're going to go up again. There have been people catching the falling knife all the way down who have lost money, and they've lost money due to the pathetic inaction of the regulators. An example of the way that this company kept the plate spinning was when I was presented with the bloody dossier, I did the responsible thing, and that is I gave the company sight of the dossier, and I said, would you like to comment and make a rebuttal? The company promised me a rebuttal via its uh, PR lackeys uh, within days. No such rebuttal arrived. After three weeks of being promised a rebuttal at every stage, I finally thought, publish and be damned, and published, and said, you can put your rebuttal up afterwards. No rebuttal ever arrived, because the dossier was true. Uh, Various threats about how I might be exposed to legal action, well, they didn't materialise either. The company was still playing for time. That is the way that fraudsters behave. Uh, They play for time. And, of course, one of the other things about any company which is run by a man who's prepared to uh, uh, see Chinese peasants bashed over the head with iron bars is a company that's prepared to do anything. One of the great things about frauds is they always hit. I'm not saying Green Dragon is a fraud for the point of uh, avoidance of doubt, just a crap company which never generated any cash uh, and was a little economical with the truth. But uh, uh, one of the things about frauds is that they always hit their earnings targets. If you're cooking the books, earnings can be whatever you want. Uh, and therefore, they can keep the plate spinning for an awful lot longer than you think is possible, especially, of course, when you've been in a bull market. And we have been in a bull market since 2013. Equities have gone higher. When you are in a bull market, people are prepared to suspend disbelief uh, for an awfully long time. So I don't know whether it was possible to short Green Dragon at 260 back in 2013. It might have been big enough at that stage. There might have been some institutional shareholders brought on board at the time of the IPO. I don't know. Uh, I don't really care. It might have been possible, but I suspect that the cost of borrow were it have been possible uh, uh, back uh, since 2013 would have meant that this wasn't a terribly profitable trade. If the regulators had acted more swiftly, as they would have done, Uh, This company would have gone to the corporate knacker's yard years and years and years ago. That they didn't has once again seen private investors lose a lot of money. But, of course, the city people, the nomads, the brokers, the lawyers and accountants who act for G3 Exploration, as well as Mr. Gruel, its CEO, have made a fortune. So do you think they care? I am often – I was uh, talking – uh, today about results from a company called Fulham Shore. I should, uh, uh, I think it is worth repeating what I said today because it is a company which uh, demonstrates uh, uh, the importance of free cash flow. Fulham Shore is a company run by a very talented restauranter, David Page, and he has two restaurants, Franco Manco or something like that, which is an Italian chain, and The Real Greek. Uh, which serves up food claiming to be Greek, but which is about as Greek as I am, uh, or indeed 
uh, uh, the people of Troy are. It is not really very Greek at all, but it uh, uh, casts a sort of fig leaf claiming to be Greek. The restaurants are upper middle market. Now, it is amazing to me that the company managed to increase its sales in the first half by 9.3%. Okay, it opened three or four more outlets, and it would have had a full period trading from a number of outlets uh, which were only partially open in the comparative period. So some of that growth comes from having new restaurants. But nonetheless, it appears that actually there is like-for-like like growth. This is quite amazing. A restaurant chain delivering growth. Because I'm sure you have read the headlines uh, just as I have. Restaurants, whether they be small independent, mom-and-pop outlets, uh, or smaller chains, or even bigger chains, have been going bust. Going bust on a quite unprecedented scale. Not just in the UK. I mean, don't take any of this nonsense about Brexit affecting the UK economy. It is a trend in America as well. There have been unprecedented numbers of bankruptcies. Uh, why is that? Well, it's a familiar tale. The UK consumer has record amounts of personal debt and record low levels of savings. We all know that that's unsustainable. We're worried the value of the, uh, the houses which we live in and where we have a mortgage is going down. That's reducing our equity. So there are all sorts of reasons why discretionary spending is under something of a squeeze. Against that, uh, you have the fact that business rates are crippling for restaurants and the minimum wage has affected restaurants. It has pushed up uh, your largest single cost item other than probably uh, your rent, uh, and that is uh, uh, your, the cost of paying your staff. When the minimum wage was first introduced, I had a furious row uh, with various people, including uh, the uh, Britain's thirstiest share blogger, Paul Scott. I said this will cost jobs. It has cost jobs. Uh, luckily, we've had a booming economy, so we haven't really seen the effect of it. But if you push up the cost base of any outfit, there are always going to be some businesses which were operating right on the margin. They were making a tiny profit. Bang, you push up their wages. They are making losses and they will close down. We've seen it with some of the retailers. They have explicitly blamed the minimum wage for making stores which were marginal loss-making. And the restaurant trade, because it's traditionally not a great payer, is one that has suffered very heavily from the minimum wage legislation. There are various other reasons. I suspect there was a lot of overcapacity in the market because an enormous amount of capital was thrown into, were thrown into restaurants uh, in uh, uh, the post-economic crash period. And a lot of chains got the capital to expand. And so there was a lot of overcapacity in that mid-market segment. Against that backdrop, therefore, the fact that Fulham Shaw has managed to increase its sales sounds almost too good to be true. Uh, it is remarkable. The company uh, throws off a number of red flags in the statements. One is the fact it has four different measures of profitability. Uh, operating profits, operating profits before or after the impact of FRS3, pre-tax profit, blah, 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 blah. Why can't it just give one simple measure of profitability? I don't know. Any company that has a number of measures of profitability is one that I am always suspicious of. But the line that I want to focus on, because sales are vanity, 
Profit is a matter of opinion, as you can see with Fulham Shore. It has lots of opinions on what its profits are. What really matters is cash in any business. If you're not generating cash, you can't pay the bills. That is a simple fact of business. So what you want to see in any business is what its free cash flow is. Now, uh, Fulham Shore boasts that there are two measures. It depends on which set of accounting treatments you, you use. But it boasts about having an operating cash inflow of 9.4 million or 5.6 million, depending on what you use. You want to see businesses which have got a cash inflow, not an operating cash flow inflow. That's uh, putting up a misleading metric, but a free operating cash inflow. And in this score, Fulham Shore fails pretty badly. It does point out that net debt, if you exclude 65 million quid's worth of lease commitments, its net debt fell during the first half of this year from 9.4 million to 8.8 million. So you look at all of that and you're thinking, well, maybe this business is not only growing its sales, not only profitable under four different measures of profitability, but actually it's throwing off cash as well. That is what the company wants investors to believe. But you need to look behind the headline statistics. Uh, the first point to make about the operating cash inflow is that a large part of it is driven by the company uh, paying its bills rather, uh, 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 rather tardily. We are told that trade payables in the six months ended 30 September increased by four million pounds. Well, that is the company not paying its bills. It's not paying its suppliers. It's not paying the, the man who gives it feta cheese or, or ouzo or uh, pasta. Uh, that is what is happening here. The company is simply paying its bills uh, later. A balance sheet, you must remember, is a snapshot of what the company's uh, position is at a given time. Whereas a profit and loss uh, statement reflects movements during the whole six months or one year. The balance sheet is a period end statement. So it is perfectly possible that uh, uh, you, in the last four weeks of the period, simply find excuses to pay your suppliers late. I'm not saying that Fulham Shore did this, uh, but this is something that businesses can do. You pay your suppliers a little bit late. And by the time they really start shouting at you, you say, oh, great, the period end has ended, we'll pay you now. So if Fulham Shore, and I'm not saying it's did this, but if Fulham Shore said, okay, we'll rack up our trade payables by 4 million in the run-up to the period end, uh, then a day after the period end, we'll pay down a whole load of them, what would that have done to the balance sheet? Uh, the answer, of course, is that the net debt position would have been materially worse a day after the period end than it was at the period end. Now, I'm not saying that Fulham Shore did this in any deliberate way, but I've seen too many businesses over time which have done that. It's called window dressing. If the company had not increased its trade payables by 4 million, now we're on accept that the business is growing its sales by, uh, uh, by 9%, so there's going to be some increase in trade payables, but let us say it has increased its trade payables by only 3 million quid rather than 4 million quid. Well, the cash 
for paying those uh, uh, trade payables would have had to come from net cash and from increased borrowings. That's the only way you could fund it. Uh, the net effect had it increased its trade payables uh, by only 1 million, more or less in line with the increase in sales, would have been that net debt at the period end would have been 11.8 million versus 9.4 million. In other words, it would have gone up materially. In terms of operating cash inflow, uh, my suggestion of uh, increasing trade payables by only a million quid, i.e. in line with sales, would have seen that operating cash inflow go down from 9.4 to 6.4, or from 5.6 down to 2.6 million, depending on which uh, set of accounting policies you're using. That starts to look a little bit less impressive. But of course, there are two other aspects to this idea of free cash inflow. The operating cash inflow just refers to the operating business. It doesn't take in uh, of a certain PLC costs or certain non-operating costs, principally the cost of servicing debt. The total uh, amount of money that went on uh, debt repayments, which had to be made, and on servicing the company's leases and borrowings was in the period 4.1 million. That is not reflected in the operating cash inflow. And I would suggest to you that going forward, the cost of servicing and maintaining the company's debt and lease uh, portfolio is going to be pretty similar in every operating period. So actually, in terms of cash inflow to the business, uh, we could knock another 4 million quid off that number. So 9.4 million, we've already reduced to 6.4 million. We can now take that down to 2.4 million. Or on the other accounting uh, uh, measure, 5.6 million, we've already reduced to 2.6 million. We can now reduce that to uh, minus 1.4 million. There is a cash outflow. But there is a third aspect to the business, and that is capital expenditure. Capital expenditure uh, in the first half uh, was £4.6 million. Now, some of that relates to the costs of opening new restaurants. That clearly is a capital-intensive uh, 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 project, uh, and I accept that perhaps a quarter of that amount relates to the cost of opening new restaurants. But the rest of it is capital expenditure on the systems and the outlook and everything about its existing restaurant chain. Because if you don't spend money on keeping your restaurants looking fantastic, uh, on maintaining the brand image, uh, and you know people will go to a real Greek rather than to your local Greek uh, uh, restaurant by, run by uh, uh, Stavros and Stavrula, uh, they go there because you get maybe slightly posher seats. You get a slightly posher menu. You get a slightly more westernized menu. There is a brand awareness of real Greek. That all costs money. Uh, you have to keep your uh, electronic point-of-sale systems updated. You have to upgrade them every couple of years. All of this is money, and it's not discretionary capex. If you don't engage in this, uh, uh, spend this money on capex to keep your estate fresh, vibrant, clean, looking good, then it'll start to look tatty, and you'll start to lose business. Now, therefore, one could easily say that, say, three and a half million of the company's capital expenditure bill 
was non-discretionary. It will be a feature every single six months. Ah, what does that do for the cash inflow? Well, uh, let's start with the 9.4 million figure. We reduced that to 6.4 million uh, because we suggested that Fulham Shaw should actually pay his bills on time. We reduced that 6.4 um, uh, by about another uh, uh, 4 million to 2.4 uh, on the basis that we're looking at the business's uh, 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 cash inflows, not just operating cash inflows. Now, We've got CapEx, which is non-discretion, which must reoccur every period, of three and a half million. Suddenly, your 2.4 million inflow uh, becomes a, a, a cash outflow of 1.1 million. Under the other operating treatment, where we only started at 5.6 million, well, that became 2.6 million after the working capital adjustment. Uh, it then became uh, uh, minus 1.4 million after the debt number, and now it's minus uh, 4.4 million after the capex number. This number that I'm talking about is free cash flow generated, and whichever way you look at it, whichever set of accounting treatments you use for Fulham Shore, the free cash inflow is in fact an outflow. It is burning cash. The headline would make you think that this is a bit of a cash cow. It clearly is not. I don't know how the sales are growing. I don't really care about which measure of the various measures of profitability the company uses, but the fact that it has so many measures of profitability is for me a red flag. What I care about is, is this business generating cash? And it's not. It's free cash flow whichever way you look at it, is negative. And that is a majorly bad sign for a business which already has got net debt of almost 9 million, uh, if you exclude the 65 million of uh, uh, lease commitments, and also uh, if you exclude uh, the fact that it's got a burgeoning trade payables book. Because that's debt in any uh, another sort of way. You can either fund your business by taking out bank debt, which you have to pay interest on, or you can fund the growth of your business uh, by simply squeezing your working capital, demanding that people pay bills on time rather more promptly, and stretching uh, uh, your trade payables book. That is another way of generating cash to grow the business. And of course, it's interest-free. Uh, it is interest-free debt not to pay your suppliers on time. It's not sustainable in the long run, but it is interest-free debt. So net debt is maybe 8.8 .8 million at the period end. I'd actually think it, the real number, if you account for that movement in trade payables, is, is closer to 11 million. But the point is, this business is now one that is seen to be burning cash. That has a number of implications. One is, in the long run, that's unsustainable. Uh, banks get pissed off uh, and they decide that the company has to do something about it. And I think what the company should be doing about it uh, is considering a share placement. After all, with a market cap of 65 million, it's trading at a big premium to uh, net assets of 40 million. Uh, net tangible assets of just 15 million is trading is enormous premium. So I believe it should do a placement uh, uh, to ease uh, the borrowing facilities. But fundamentally, a business which isn't generating cash, uh, which uh, its free cash flow is negative, you have to ask about its valuation. I note within the balance sheet, there is, for instance, uh, 25 million quid of goodwill in there. 
can you really support the carrying values of the business at being whatever it is, 40 million net asset value, if it's not burning cash, if it is burning cash? I suggest that you can't. Uh, I suggest that there should be a reassessment of the value of the entire estate based on the fact that at a free cash flow level, this company is deeply in the red. If one does that and takes it to its logical conclusion, uh, uh, then one would have to look very carefully at the carrying values and certainly the goodwill within the balance sheet. And therefore, that uh, uh, suggests that there may have to be big write-offs, which, of course, would smash profits in the period going forward. But it would be the prudent way to look at it. All of this analysis and all of these conclusions just comes from ignoring the sales number. Well, I still can't see how, quite how they're doing it. Ignoring the various measures of profitability, which uh, 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 are so confusing that we don't need to go into them now. The fact there are so many is, of course, a red flag. And just focusing not on the operating cash flow number that the company wants you to look at, but at the free cash flow generated number, which is what you really need to be looking at. Because it is the free cash flow generated by any business which ultimately determines its value. That is almost it from me for today. Thank you once again to Open Orphan for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, uh, follow the company at Open Orphan on Twitter. Uh, listen to Cathal Friel in uh, uh, Share Profits Radio uh, 8. Uh, explain the, the, the thoughts behind the business and look at its recent announcement of the uh, All Share merger with Havivo. If you've liked what you've listened to today, uh, you can either wait another week or maybe 10 days. No, 10 days is Christmas. It won't be 10 days. Wait another week for the next edition of Share Profits Radio, which is free. Or you can stop being a cheapskate and sign up for all the copy, uh, the magnificent uh, fraud-busting and lie-busting articles we do, plus my daily bear cast on share profits. It only costs five ninety-nine a month, and uh, that's in remarkable value uh, for 300 articles, including 30 podcasts a month. Uh, no other website is anything like it. I hope you join Share Profits. Make it an early New Year's resolution. Join Share Profits today. And I'll speak to you if you are a wise uh, soul who invests in, in, in knowledge uh, on Bearcast tomorrow. If you're a cheapskate, I'll speak to you in a week's time. Thank you very much. <laughs>